You can be seated. It's going to get arranged here real quick. Before we jump into the word, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to communicate your truth. Uh, Lord, it is a, I believe, a sacred trust to be able to teach people from your word. Your word is timeless. God, your word is relevant. Uh, God, your word continues to um, refine us. Uh, words inspired by your spirit um, quite literally millennia ago. And God, yet it's relevant today. Uh, Lord, I pray you would order my words and my thoughts, that you would go before them and that you would open our hearts to hear your word, God. If it's someone who's already a follower of yours and that you would convict and you would encourage and, and you would correct in all the right ways. And God, if it's someone who doesn't yet know you, that they would get a glimpse of you and an understanding into your kingdom that they've never had before that would enable them to take that next step towards reconnecting with you, their creator, and being drawn into your life and placing their faith and trust in your son, Jesus, and what he's done. God, guide us. It is a privilege to worship you through singing, through, through teaching and a message, through the Lord's Supper, through giving, through being together with other people. Uh, may we hold that and, and understand what a gift it is. Guide us, Father, over these next several moments together to discover more of you. And it's in your name we pray and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen. So quick survey time. How many of you would say you like board games or party games? It doesn't have to be both. It could be one or the other. It could be some board game and party game people. Here's what I've found about board games is that some people love board games and some people loathe them. They spell board games B-O-R-E-D rather than B-O-R-A-B-O-A-R-D. I can't even spell it. So they think board games really are boring. Some really love them. In our household, we enjoy board games. Uh, and uh, I like party games. I found that some people think party games are lame. Uh, usually it's people that don't like to be outgoing and don't like to be out in front of people. Uh, some people think they're lame, but I like party games. If, if, you don't, if you don't like party games, will you just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. That's okay. Um, uh, you may not have as much context what I'm about to share with you, um, but there's this game I played growing up called Taboo. And uh, maybe you've heard, you might have heard of the game Taboo. So kind of the concept is there's a deck of cards, and on each card is a word uh, it's typically a topic, a subject, and beneath it are several other words, and those several other words are things that you're not allowed to say. And so the goal is to get your team to guess the top word without using gestures and only using your descriptive words, but you can't use the ones on the card, and it gets really hard. For example, your word might be golf, and it'll tell you you can't use the word club, fairway, course, ball, and it's like, how am I going to describe this to somebody? And, and if you say one of those words, the other team is, is ready, their representative standing next to you looking at the same card, and they will hit this annoying buzzer every time you use one of the words you're not supposed to say. And so you're describing it, and you're like trying to get your team to guess. You're like, oh, it's a course. 
Like, you can't say that. It's, just, it's taboo. That's what we mean by taboo. You can't say it. You can't talk about it. And I enjoyed that game as a kid, probably because I liked buzzing people and uh, not so much being buzzed myself. I kind of could be that rude, interrupting person in that moment. What I found, though, in life is that there really are things that are taboo, right? When it comes to our personal relationships, when it comes to our workplace, when it comes to dinner conversation, there are kind of some unwritten rules about things that we just don't talk about. I think about friendship. I think about friendship during an election year. Uh, probably right now for you, taboo is, if, if, you, if you are from different belief places, you probably are refusing to talk about politics. Like, we're just not going to bring that up because I know where you stand and, and I know where you stand and we just don't talk about it because you know if it does get talked about, what happens? Someone's going to get upset. Someone's going to get angry. Someone's going to get punched in the face and it's like, that just doesn't end well. Uh, there are things in your family you don't talk about that are taboo because you know that maybe there's a lot of hurt tied to this part of your life or maybe this subject just elicits all kind of painful emotion and so you just don't talk about it. There are things that are good to be taboo and there are things that are bad to be taboo. Uh, I will tell you in a lot of uh, relationships I know, I'm talking about married relationships, one of the things that are taboo is, is talking about sexual intimacy. Couples just won't talk about it. It's too awkward, we don't bring it up. And yet what perpetuates sometimes just some really unhealthy things and um, it needs to be talked about. It's not good. Money's another one of those often for couples they won't talk about because they know if they start talking about it, then they're gonna get upset and they're gonna be at each other's throats. The church is the same way. There are things within the church. When we say church, we're not talking about a building with walls. Uh, we're talking about the people that are the followers of Jesus throughout the world. There are things that are taboo. Depending upon the culture where the church is expressing itself, because the church is a big C church, the body of Christ, believers all around the world, and, and in different cultures, there are different things that are taboo. There are some cultures I've visited with people in other countries, and they say you would never even say the word sex from a platform in a church. It's just taboo. You don't talk about it. It doesn't matter how much the word of God may speak about it. You just don't talk about those things in that culture. Well, the American culture has some of those same things. There are things that we don't talk about in church because they're taboo. Uh, and one of those is money. Specifically, the place money has in our hearts and the, the role it plays even in our pursuit of following Jesus. We say we can't talk about money in church. We, we've heard people say, listen, uh, all the church cares about is money. And really, we're talking about a handful of televangelists who've kind of ruined it for everybody. But we'll say, no, we can't talk about money. We'll look at our personal life as followers of Jesus and we'll say, listen, I can hold you accountable for how you're living, uh, whether you're being sexually pure. I can hold you accountable for how you're parenting. I can speak into your life if you don't handle these situations where I can help you be the best follower of Jesus you can be. But I can't talk to you about what you do with your money. It's taboo, which is ironic to me because we live in a capitalist society that is all about money. Like a lot of you take, wake up in the morning, you check the stock market. You want to know what's in your bank account. We make bank transfers. We make credit card transactions every day. Like it's money is everywhere, but yet when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we say we can't talk about that with each other. And I think it's unfortunate. And one of the primary reasons why is because Jesus knows how much our wealth and how much and what we do with our wealth, what it says about our heart and what's important to us. Maybe you've been told this before, maybe this is new to you, but Jesus talks about money and wealth and our heart 
more than he talks about heaven and hell. That's a pretty, pretty big statement, isn't it? Like, Jesus talks about wealth and money and its place in our lives more than he talks about heaven and hell. And it's not because it's more important than heaven or hell. But he knows that the place money has in our hearts often dictates how we live our life, which translates into that long-term, what's going to happen with our lives. But here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't care if something's taboo. He, he, he doesn't care if it's awkward or uncomfortable. He'll talk about it. And if you've not caught on as we journey through Luke's gospel so far, there are many times Jesus is willing to risk hurting feelings if it means healing a heart and making it whole. Jesus will risk hurting feelings every time if it means that your heart can be healed and made whole. Think about his disciples when they were having that debate. We looked at this several weeks ago, and they're posturing. Who's going to be more important in your kingdom, Jesus? And he's like, you idiots. Like, it's not about who's most important. He doesn't say those exact words, but that's the whole idea. Like, like you shouldn't be talking. Like, he risks hurting their feelings. Like, they, they're posturing for this position. Like, guys, that doesn't matter. Whoever's going to be great in my kingdom is going to be the least. He risks hurting feelings to heal the heart. Think about the dialogue we looked at two weeks ago as Jesus warns the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. Here are religious leaders, and he calls out some of their hypocrisy. Why? Because he's willing to risk hurting their feelings in hopes of healing their heart. Jesus is interested most in the long-term play of you becoming healthy and whole and the best version of a human created in God's image that you can be. And if it means hurting feelings in the short term, he'll do it. And and here's what I want to be upfront with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, likely if you're not a follower of Jesus, this message is not going to hurt you in any way. You're probably even curious what God has to say about money. Uh, Maybe you're curious about how our church thinks about money. But if you're a follower of Jesus, chances are that for some of you, your feelings are going to get hurt this morning. And I hope that it's okay, because for me, it's worth the risk if it means your heart gets healed and your heart gets whole. And we come to a place as a follower of Jesus where we're living more in line with what God wants for us and for our lives. And I don't don't just jump in and say, we're going to talk about money today because it's something that I enjoy doing. Um... But I enjoy preaching God's word for what it is. And when we get to Luke chapter 12, verse 13, we have no choice because Jesus addresses wealth and riches on earth and what we do with it. So if you have your Bibles, find Luke chapter 12. We're going to jump in at verse 13. We left off here last week. So Jesus is traveling with the crowd. This has been a routine thing if you've been journeying through Luke with us. Crowds are following Jesus. They are interested in Jesus. And some of them have even invested and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be his disciples. There's huge crowds gathering around Jesus. In the midst of that crowd is a man. And this is what happens. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So a man comes from the crowd, he pulls Jesus aside, and he says, Jesus, here's the deal. My brother just got the inheritance. That means he's probably the firstborn. He receives the greater portion from his family. And this man wants Jesus to kind of arbitrate the case. Will you tell him to give me my share? You may ask, well, why would someone in the crowd just come up to Jesus and ask him to settle a civil dispute? Well, because rabbis were looked at as being distinguished and being wise teachers and leaders in their community, people would come. This actually isn't the first time. We've already been here in Luke's gospel. People come to him and ask him to settle a dispute. His family came to him in a crowd one time and said, hey, well, will you figure this out for us? So this man comes to Jesus. Tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. Here's Jesus' response. Verse 14. 
But he, Jesus, said to him, the man, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus continues, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus sees behind the man's request. He, he sees the heart. Why is this guy demanding Jesus to serve as a judge or arbitrator over the estate? It's because there's some greed welling up in him. The word covetousness here and greed in the NIV, it's a translation of the same Greek word from the original language and has to do with this lust or this desire for more. The insatiable lust and desire for more, more stuff, more wealth, more riches. And Jesus tells him, take care and be on your guard. What enemy is lurking that he needs to be cautious of? What enemy is lurking the crowd needs to be cautious of? It's greed. It's this insatiable lust and desire for more. There's a lie that always lurks behind our lusts that gets us to give in. For example, if you think about the lust for sexual gratification or pleasure outside of God's you know, boundaries, that lie is that if you do this, you will have the closeness. If you do this, you will keep that person in relationship with you. If you do this, you'll be satisfied. And we believe into that lie, and then what happens? We're racked by guilt, we're racked by shame and all those things that come with it. You think about the lust for power and control and influence. There's a lie that lies behind that. If I have more power, more control, more influence, then I'll be more important and people will like me more. But what do we see about people who pursue more power, more influence, more control? Do they have more people that like them or typically less people that like them? There's a lie. And there's a lie with sensational lust and desire for more, more wealth, more stuff, more things. And that lie is that if I have more, then I will be more and I will experience more. And if you and I are honest, this is not just a first century problem, is it? Because I would venture to say that virtually everyone in the room, maybe you've worked through that, but for many of us in the room, there are times when we think, if I just had, then I would be. Did you know the average size of the American home in the last 50 years has increased from 980 square feet to just short of 3,000 square feet? Why is that? We're getting more stuff. We need to fill it up. The, the, the number one growing business, this is dating now, the statistics old, it's like 2007, 2008. The number one growing business in America in 2000, 2007, 2008, leading up to that you know, recession we had was storage um, space, self-storage. Number one growing business in America. We, we live in a culture of great wealth, and I know we don't often want to hear that, um, Oftentimes, we look at our checkbooks and we realize how little we have. We're overextended with debt and mortgages and obligations for this and obligations for that. We think we don't have much. When you look at what we have in the United States of America compared with much of the world, we have so much more. And yet we convince ourselves that if I just had even more, I would be more. That word life here that Jesus gets at, one's life uh, it has to do with not only 
quantity of life, like your measure of your years, but quality of life. And we think that if I just had more, I would experience a better life. You know, there's research that's been done about happiness. Maybe you've heard of the happiness quotient. And statistics show that actually the more people have, the greater the struggle to be happy. It doesn't meet it. And yet that's a struggle that so many of us have, not just this brother and not just people in the crowd. And so Jesus, to help these people understand, and us by extension, tells a parable, beginning in verse 16. Here's the parable. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The parable is pretty simple, isn't it? There's a man who's already wealthy. He already has more than enough. He is a rich man. He has a harvest. It is plentiful. And instead of taking what he has and saying, hey, how can I use this to benefit others? What does he say? I'm going to tear down my barn. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm just going to keep building up stuff for me. He even has this really awkward conversation with himself. Did you catch that? Like he talks to himself. Hey, soul, guess what? We got enough. We're just going to sit back, have fun, chill out, enjoy the rest of our life. And Jesus drives home the twist in the story. The irony is that night his life is required of him. And the question becomes, what have you done with your life? Are our lives lived to build up ourselves and our own kingdom? Or are we building up his kingdom? Look at the question that Jesus poses in verse 21 or the statement he makes. Again, he's turning his question back to this brother and back to the crowd, and he should be turned on us. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Essentially, this is what we have to look forward to. God will demand of us an accounting, and it will be for us like it was for this rich man if we store up treasure for ourselves and we are not rich towards God. That sentence is pivotal. Uh, Verse 21, nowhere does Jesus say, if you have wealth, if you have treasure, then you're a bad person. Sometimes we we can't differentiate those two, and we want to assume that just because someone has much, maybe they've built up a successful business. Maybe they have, God's given them great business acumen, and they're a successful leader, and they have a lot. That doesn't make them a bad person. If you're in the room today and you would be considered wealthy in the eyes even of the American culture, that doesn't make you a bad person. So don't hear that. What Jesus is getting at is the heart that says, you're wealthy, you have treasure. Are you storing up for yourself alone or are you also rich towards God? What are you doing with what you've been given? What owns your heart? Yes, it's hard when people have a lot sometimes to be distracted by that wealth. There's a reason why Jesus in another account says that it's hard or impossible for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle. 
He's using hyperbole to show how sometimes when we have so much, we're distracted from what matters the most. But just because you may have an abundance in this room does not make you a bad person. The question we all need to be asking is, am I rich towards God with what God has given me? Is God the first thought when it comes to our wealth and our riches and our financial means, or is he the afterthought? You can answer that question right now. You know that question for yourself. Is he your priority? Do you look at what you have and what you've been given and say, God, how do you want me to use this? And that dictates where you live, what you own, what you buy, where you go, or I'm gonna do what I want, when I want, where I want, and God, there's some leftovers, you can have it. You know if that's you or not. That's not for me to tell you if that's you. So just answer the question that Jesus is probing. Are you rich toward God? Do you know that God's purpose, and why this is so important to Jesus, is that from the very beginning of time, you go all the way back to Genesis with the account of a man named Melchizedek, that God has highlighted the importance of giving of what we have towards his kingdom. Like, we like to think that crowdfunding is a new thing. Like, the last decade, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, you name it. We, 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 even Facebook has its own crowdfunding stuff now. We, we can come together, and based upon what we have, give part of what we have to a project, and that project comes through. You know, you want this new really cool belt, you donate to Kickstarter, maybe you donate 15, someone else donates 1,500, they get a couple extra perks, and voila, the belt is funded, right? You have a family who's going through a tragedy, maybe they need funeral expenses cared for, maybe all this person can do is give $5, this person gives 500, and together we give from what we have, and the goal is met, the project is made. That's how God intended the kingdom of God to work. I can't tell you all the reasons why money has to function in society. All I know is that you go back to the very beginning of time and there have been trades and there have been bartering and and there's been some type of currency and God has chosen to use the resources that he gives to people through talents that he's blessed them with and intelligence that he's given them to fund his work. And together we crowdfund. And the way God kind of set it up, going back to Genesis, is that in the Old Testament, there was a lot of talk of this thing called a tithe. The word tithe can be confusing. Oftentimes we think of tithing as just giving, but a tithe literally means a tenth. So when the scriptures talk about a tithe, it's about giving a tenth of what we have. So you go back to Genesis and on in through the time of the Exodus and on into the time of the people, even when they were in Jerusalem, and they were called to give a tenth of what they had to God's kingdom, to God's work, a tithe. There's even this famous prophecy in Malachi. It's in chapter three where God points out kind of how the Israelites are not measuring up to what he really wants for them. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord. Like, bring me this. Let's crowdfund my work and my kingdom together. So fast forward to the New Testament. Tithing is not mentioned, uh, but what I can find one time in the entire New Testament And it's in a passage that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Jesus looks to the Pharisees, and he's commenting on how their outward behavior looks so perfect, but there's decay in their hearts. And here's what he says in Luke 11, 42. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't have gotten a tenth of your garden herbs. You shouldn't have been so meticulous in that. But he says you shouldn't have done that while neglecting justice and mercy. Uh, 
God, God wants all of that. He wants you to be just and merciful and to give to his work. And yet, even further in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, just as he builds on the ideas of lust, um, I tell you, someone commits adultery, with their law, their wife, uh, adultery against their wife, even if they lust in their own heart. Uh, anger is equated with murder. Like Jesus ups things. We see that in Scripture too. Jesus may talk about a tithe just one time, but elsewhere, and we'll see in other parables later in our study of Luke, that if God owns everything, it's all his. Paul talks in the letter of 2 Corinthians about uh, giving generously and joyfully and sacrificially. In his letter to Timothy, he talks about being generous and gracious and willing to share. Like the principle in the New Testament is not just a tenth, but we should be giving as much as we can to fund God's work. It's about what's the priority in our hearts. And yet, have you seen the most recent data? Um, Here a couple years ago, a uh, large research study was done on the giving practices of Christians in America. And what that research found is among self-professing disciples of Jesus, that means they say, I'm a devoted follower of Jesus, they found that on average, 1% of those people attending church give 10% or more to their church. 1%. You know what else that survey revealed? is that on average, the American follower of Jesus gave 2.5% of their income to charities as a whole and 1% to their local church, to God's kingdom work. The goal is not to make you and I feel miserable. The goal is just to deal with the reality. We live in a country that's prosperous and that's affluent. And what comes with that territory is that we think that if I just had more, if I just had bigger, if I just had larger then I would be more and I would be bigger and I would be larger. But that's not how God's kingdom is measured. Are we being rich toward God? So what's the remedy? What's the solution? What's the secret to becoming a person who is rich towards God? Well, the secret's found in the next section of scripture. It's really important as you study the Bible, as you read through things, if there is a word like therefore, um, it means that what follows is linked to what comes before it. So in verse 22, Jesus speaks to his disciples. So they've heard this whole argument. They've heard about man's life not consisting in the abundance of his possessions. They've heard about not storing up treasures just for themselves, being rich towards God. And so he says to his disciples in the context of that conversation, therefore, because of everything you've just heard, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He goes on to cite those famous examples of, think about the ravens. They are fed even though you're more valuable than them. Think about the lilies in the field. They're clothed greater than Solomon in all of his splendor and you're even more valuable than them. Jesus says, if we're going to be rich towards God, the secret is, is that we have to depend upon God. We can't get so caught up in what we're going to buy next, what type of clothing we're going to have, what we're going to eat, but we position ourselves in a place where we are dependent upon him. And that's where ultimate life is found. And we can be those generous people instead of greedy people when we're dependent upon him. But in our culture of affluence, so often we want to be dependent upon ourselves, right? If I can just save a little bit more, if I can just have a little bit more tucked away and instead of using it to further his kingdom, we build up our own. Are you rich toward God? 
He doubles down as he gets towards the end of this passage in Luke 12. He tells us in verse 31 to seek his kingdom first. Then in verse 33, he kind of comes back to the parable. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is just driving home this point. Hey, guys, make sure money doesn't rule your heart. Make sure you're not supplanting me who supplies all that you need with you thinking that stuff of this world can supply all that you need. Do you see why it's so dangerous that talking about money has become taboo? Many of you have grown up in a church culture where money has not been talked about because we're scared of what other people might think. And in the process, we end up living lives and passing down lives and, and examples to our children that don't model what honors God the most. And by cutting off money from things that we can talk about with brothers and sisters in Christ that we're close to, and we're supposed to be, you know, iron sharpens iron is a phrase we like to use and we cut off what we do with our finances from that conversation, then how do we grow? So can we take money off the taboo list, and can we just speak about what Jesus says about it, and can he do that work in our heart, and can we see the most generous nation on earth be the most generous nation to the world to fund his purposes in the world? So yes, every man and woman and child in every corner of the earth can come to know who Jesus is and what God has done for them, and yes, so the hungry can be fed, and yes, so the naked can be clothed, and yes, so those who are, are, are stuck in trafficking environments can be set free. Can we be people who say, you know what, I'm gonna live on less and give more to his kingdom so that his name is made great people's lives are made whole? Can we bring healing to the world? I think we can. But we have to be people who are willing to build up his kingdom first. Will we be rich toward God? You may be saying, Craig, okay, then where do I start? Here's what I would encourage you, and you've probably heard me say this before. If you are currently a follower of Jesus and you're not investing regularly in God's kingdom work, then you've got to start somewhere. And I know that looking out and looking at your income and saying 10%, that may feel completely like impossible. Start somewhere and make a plan on how you can grow your generosity. It may take you a year, two years, three years, four years to get to where you're giving 10% and even more to the kingdom, but start somewhere. And this isn't just something for all the uh, adults in the room who have real jobs if you're a student and you're getting birthday money, if you're getting graduation money, it's a great practice to begin. Am I gonna give 10% of what I have to my king and his kingdom? Start moving towards that. I share this oftentimes. If you are a follower of Jesus who's already been giving 10%, you've been doing it for a number of years, chances are um, you don't always recognize the dependence anymore. And so I tell people the tithe is a great place to aim for, but it's a horrible place to land. What would it look like for you to stretch yourself to, to give 12%, 15%, 20% of this kingdom? I know stories of people who say, I'm gonna live off of half and I'm gonna give the other half away, not just to the local church, but to other things. And it's a beautiful blessing to the community. And it's a beautiful blessing to the world. Start somewhere and then grow that and say, God, how can I depend upon you more and more and more? Uh, the next thing I would tell you if you're a disciple of Jesus is that I would reflect more and more on his mission the why behind giving is not because some guy in a Jesus is bigger than Sunday shirt tells you you should do it. The big why is because God understands how money can mess up our hearts. And God understands how you can use your and my resources to fund his work and to change the world. And we have to believe in that before we believe in anything else.
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I would share with you. I hope you see the reason why we give, the reason uh, why we want to give, because we understand that our God has done immeasurably more for us than we could ever ask for or imagine is how Paul says it. One of the things I love about our new communion setup is that we have communion and offering side by side. That should be a reminder week in and week out as we celebrate what Jesus has done, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, that through Jesus Christ, a sacrifice was made that settles the relationship and the debt between us and God. And we're made whole. And we have the opportunity to live as sons and daughters of God for his eternal purposes that go on and on and on. We can have hope. We can have healing. We can have joy. We can have peace in this life. All because of what Jesus has done. And so I give because he's the first and the most generous giver. That's why I give. You want to know why Craig and Audrey Howie strive to give more and more to the kingdom the longer they live? It's because I believe in what God is doing. I believe in what he's up to. I believe that he is the answer for what ails the world. I believe that when I look at our just messed up political culture right now, that ultimately we're all crying out for Jesus. Republicans aren't going to solve the problem. Democrats aren't going to solve the problem. I'm sorry, libertarians, you're not going to solve the problem. Jesus is going to solve the problem. It's our hearts that he wants. We can get off on a tangent here. We can talk about defunding the police if we want, but do you know why we need police officers? Because there's evil in the world and it's not going away because people need Jesus. We need Jesus. And what we celebrate each week is that Jesus came to make it right. So that's why I give. I give for him because I want other people to experience that. I want men and women of every color and every place around the world to know who he is. And that's my hope for you. I'm gonna pray and in just a moment we're gonna celebrate communion together and I want those things to be on your heart and and on your mind. Um, The way we've been doing it around here is as the music starts and I'm done praying, uh, you can go to the nearest communion station. There's... Uh, three across this side of the room and three across this side of the room. Um, If you're unable to get up and get communion, either have someone that came with you get it for you or just simply raise your hand and uh, someone in the back of the room will make sure you have it. Uh, Take it back to your seats and let's just worship God through remembering who he is and what he's done and may we together be generous people. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I love you. We love you. God, draw our hearts closer to yours and refine those places in us that are so hard, that are so difficult to to hand over. And God, make us more and more into the people you want us to be. God, we look to you and we thank you for the grace that's found in your son. And it's in his name we pray.